God's Word tonight to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And again, for those of you who may be visiting tonight, uh, in the morning we are on a series of messages going through the book of Exodus in which we are seeing Moses as the one who is the foreshadowing of Christ um, in his life, in his work, in his ministry. In the evening, we are going through the book of 2 Corinthians, and we are now up to chapter 11. And this evening, uh, I'll be preaching on uh, verses 1 through 15, although I must confess that probably it could be broken down into probably at least three, if not four, sermons. However, if I were to do so, it would basically be on the same theme over and over and over again. Um, And so a a preacher has to be uh, conscious of the fact of not being too wearying on one particular subject as well. And so uh, we're taking all of these verses, uh, uh, those 15 verses in in one segment tonight um, in order not to... uh, weary the hearer of that word either. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul writing, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray by a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles, even if I am unskilled in speaking. I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, This boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Acacia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, 
For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing again. Father, we pray that we will never be deceived from the truth of the gospel. We pray that you will work in Pastor Bob's heart to keep him clear that he understands and you will give him the direction he needs that he may preach to us and expound your word to us in a way that we can understand it and that we always understand the truth of your gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Break our passage down tonight into these three points. First of all, a marriage illustration that Paul gives. Secondly, a personal commitment that Paul lets us in on. And then thirdly, a disguised angel. So a marriage illustration, a personal commitment, and a disguised angel. This passage opens with a kind of an interesting way of doing so. Paul says, I want to go on a, on a little foolishness with you. I know that there are those who sometimes think that there is no place for smiling or laughter in the house of God. And yet, considering that we believe that this is by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's interesting that, that Paul says and to this congregation here in Corinth, in the Word of God, let me go down a path of foolishness with you for just a moment. Humor me. Let, 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 let me... Let me paint for you a picture that I'm sure will, will probably make you smile a little bit or perhaps even chuckle or laugh because I'm, I'm going down a road I, I don't normally go down, Paul says. This is not like me. This is not characteristic of me. But he's saying, I think the situation that you are dealing with there in Corinth, I think the situation I am dealing with in my relationship with you and I think the situation of, of what is going on between me and these super apostles calls forth for a, a little bit of tongue-in-cheek as I go through this passage. And that's what Paul is doing in these opening verses. By calling even these, these opponents the super apostles, he's painting a picture of them that they themselves have painted of themselves, but what a foolish picture it is, isn't it? To think of one considering themselves to be a super apostle. What does that look like? What does that sound like? Well, Paul is about ready to describe it for us. He begins, however, with this marriage illustration. Paul speaks about, first of all, his work there in Corinth, and and he, and he almost pictures himself as, as the one who is sort of the go-between in the, in the betrothal process. He sees himself, as it were, as the divine matchmaker that is taking place here. He is the one who came to Corinth and introduced the bride to the bridegroom. He is the one who came to Corinth and spoke of Christ and told them of Christ. He is the one who, who brought them the gospel message. He is the one that, that first upon their ears 
spoke of the great salvation that is found in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. It is through Paul's preaching, it is through Paul's teaching that these folk there in Corinth came to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Paul speaks about that as as the betrothal, as the fact that there was a commitment made between them. That they pledged themselves to Christ and that Christ has indeed pledged Himself to the church, to the bride there in Corinth. I don't think most pastors would think of their work in life as being that of a matchmaker, although I know plenty of pastors who try to do that, especially down in Costa Rica, that perhaps happens, as well as other places. But I do know pastors who, who, who actually take it upon themselves as a passion within their congregation to make sure okay, that young men are matched up with perhaps women, young women that they have, have pastored in previous congregations. And although we might consider that to be rather strange or at least humorous, it's rather interesting that Paul sees his work as the pastor as the missionary, as the apostle of doing that. Not in terms of a physical marriage, but spiritually, of bringing people to Christ, of introducing them to the bridegroom. That is part of what Paul is saying causes a little bit of tongue-in-cheekness. It causes an interesting picture to emerge and that would especially be true amongst his Jewish recipients. It is common knowledge that amongst the Jews there were those who were indeed given this kind of responsibility. There are those who are designated as the sort of professional matchmaker, the one to whom you go to, to have your, your daughter to, to be found a husband, or if you have a son, to have him find a daughter, and to work out all the agreements that need to be worked out in terms of the betrothal, in terms of the dowry and all of that. So Paul is using an illustration out of their lives to show them that this has been his work and that indeed they are involved in this relationship, in this covenant relationship with Christ as their head, with Christ as their bridegroom. Paul then says... It is of great interest that I note what Satan is doing amongst you. He picks it up, verse 3, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts too are being led astray. Let's just step back a minute from that statement about his Satan's cunning. One, here we have once again an acknowledgement in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, of an Old Testament event that is not considered fictitious, that is not considered just sort of some sort of moral picture to describe man's humanity. But Paul is writing this as factual that there was indeed a serpent that tempted Eve. So within our denomination, one of the things that men for the ministry, have to attest to, 
is do you believe the historicity of those first 11 chapters of Genesis? In other words, do you believe in the historical reality of an Adam and Eve? Do you believe in the historical reality of a serpent that tempts Eve? Why? Why are we so strong upon that? Because it is biblical. The New Testament, Paul is building his argument not upon some fable, but he's building the argument upon the historical reality that Satan, in the garb, in the disguise of a serpent, cunningly deceived Eve. But Paul's point is to take that historical reality that took place there in the Garden of Eden to say, that's what's happening amongst you in the church at Corinth. You're betrothed to Christ. There is a legal relationship that exists. Yes, there is a coming consummation. Yes, there is the coming day when we are gathered at the feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb. But we are in the betrothal relationship. For the Jew, that meant a legal reality. Not a possibility, not a probability. It was a legal reality that could be only severed by divorce. Hence, Joseph, when he finds out about Mary's pregnancy, even though they are only betrothed, says, and the scriptures tell us, he was thinking about divorcing her privately, quietly. Because it required a divorce to end that betrothal. It was indeed a legally binding relationship. Paul says, that's what you have in Christ, Church of Corinth. You have a legal binding relationship with Christ. But Satan is cunningly deceiving you. He is cunningly trying to break that covenant relationship that you have with Christ, even as Satan successfully broke that covenant relationship that Adam and Eve had with the Lord God in the garden. That's what Satan is doing amongst you. Now the question would be, how is he doing that? How is Satan? I'm sure the people in Corinth are going, Paul, how? In what way? Paul says in the fact that you're being led to a different gospel. A different gospel that has a different spirit. And not only a different spirit, but you have a different Jesus. If you read through the letters of Paul, that ought to stand out. When he says in 4, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus... Do you know how rare that is for Paul to use only that word? When Paul usually speaks of Christ, he calls him Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ. This is one of the only times that Paul uses only the word Jesus. Only that name. Why? Because that's the different gospel. It is a Christless gospel that the people of Corinth 
are being cunningly led astray by a disguised Satan that is about to do great damage to the marriage of this church to Christ. That, first of all, the marriage illustration. Secondly, Paul then goes on this this little episode where he's talking again in verse 7. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself? Now he's still in that in that, let me have a little foolishness here. Okay, he, he's still, he, 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 there, there are many rhetorical questions within this, within this section, which is Paul's way of saying, I want you to get you to think, but man, the answers are rather obvious. It's kind of foolish of me to even raise this. But he's in, in this personal commitment section. Paul is raising two points. He's saying, one, I came and I served your church. I served. You didn't pay me, and I didn't ask for any support. In fact, my support for being there in Corinth was coming from other churches. It was them, okay, that I was, Paul uses the term, robbing, in order that I might spend time with you free of charge. Now, why is Paul making that a point? Because the super apostles were charging again that Paul was a minister for profit. Paul only told people face-to-face what they wanted to hear. Paul just made salvation easy by preaching Christ crucified. Well, that's an easy faith. Paul's just building you up. Paul's just making you feel good about yourself. Because Paul just wants to get into your pocket and take your money. Paul's defense is, how can that be true? I served you without asking for a penny. Not once did I burden any one of you. So the charge against him is false. The second thing Paul brings up is his love for these people. He does it once again in in that turned about way. Verse 11. And why? Now, why what? Why did I serve you? Why did I come to Corinth? Why was I there? Because I do not love you? Is that the reason I came to Corinth? I hate Corinthians so much. That's why I came to Corinth and preached the gospel. I hate you in Corinth. I despise you in Corinth. Is that why I came? And what Paul is is, is trying to do is having them stop. Think about this. Reflect upon this. Isn't that utter foolishness? When you really think about the time I was there, when you really think about my ministry amongst you in Corinth, did, did you really sense that I was there hating you all the time? Why? Because I do not love you? 
Paul answers his own rhetorical question. God knows. This is the heart of the apostle, opened and laid bare before us. Why did I come to you? Why did I stay? Why did I preach the gospel? Why did I write that letter that I wrote to you? Because I hate you? God knows how much I love you. Amazing statement. Amazing depth into the heart of Paul. You know, oftentimes Paul is pictured as this doctrinal theologian. He's pictured as the one from whom we, we get all the doctrine from and in the New Testament. And say I think that's a very unfair caricature of the apostle he seems to open up his heart on a regular basis that you don't get the sense that Paul is doing a job you get the sense that the work of being an apostle is a passion because not only is he passionate about Christ he is passionate about the people he serves. And the more I reflected upon this passage, the more I thought, if I, if I ever have the chance, or opportunity, not chance, opportunity, at a young man's ordination, and I were asked to give the charge to that young man, I would charge that young man with this text. Love your congregation with sincerity and truth. That is what Paul did. But that doesn't mean as Paul opens up his heart and you see this, 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 this gentleness, you see this compassion, you see this love. That doesn't mean Paul's going to be a doormat. No, it is because of his love. It is because of his passion. It is because of his deep-rooted concern for Christ, for the gospel, and for this church at Corinth, that Paul, as it were, now rises and says, now we need to deal with these men. Enough is enough. It is time to deal with these men who call themselves and refer to themselves as the super apostles. That is where we now turn as we come to that part of the passage in verse 12 where he starts dealing with those men and with Satan. So we come to part three, the disguised angel. First of all, let's deal with this as, as far as how it was emerging in Corinth. What is going on here? What is happening in Corinth 
in Paul's absence that that Paul is 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 coming now not with with this 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 talk of of love but he's coming to it with this talk of love with courageous conviction with words that he does not use anywhere else except in the book of Galatians where he's dealing with basically the same heresy Think of the names that Paul uses here. Verse 13. These men are false apostles. These men are deceitful workmen. These men are disguised apostles. That's a pretty strong condemnation. My guess is the fact that there were Probably some, or would at least today, who would say, Pastor, you shouldn't be so harsh. You shouldn't be quite so judgmental. Just think of those words. Those those words are full of condemnation. They're full of judgment. In order to determine something true and false, you have to make a judgment. Paul judges these men to be false in order to distinguish between that which is deceitful and that which is true. Paul makes a judgment and a condemnation calling them deceitful workmen. He sees through the disguise. He sees through the hypocrisy. He sees through the falseness and he calls it. These are none other than men who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ, meaning there is no genuineness found within them. As I said, outside of Galatians, where Paul calls calls them dogs, probably no stronger language that Paul uses in terms of condemnation of those who are not teaching truth. See, and that's, that's where we have to dig to because it, it's not just Paul name-calling. There is a reason why Paul is using these terms and titles to describe these super-apostles who have appeared on the scene in Corinth. See, they were teaching an untruth. Now, in Corinth, I would describe it as this. It's a gospel of Christ plus. It's a gospel of Christ plus. What was happening in Corinth was these individuals that I have referred to before as Judaizers. They are men who have infiltrated the church, have raised themselves up to a position of prominence, have rose in condemnation to the one who is the true apostle of Jesus Christ, who is Paul, have elevated themselves above so that Paul, tongue-in-cheek, refers to them as super-apostles. Those who think of themselves above all others. And they are teaching a doctrine of Christ plus law. That in order to be saved, Christ is not enough. You must not only believe in Jesus Christ, but you must also accept the law. 
You must also accept the laws of cleansing. You must also accept the laws of distinction. You must also accept the laws of washing. You must accept the entirety of the law and you must realize that you are not saved unless you keep that Old Testament ceremonial law. That is the only way of salvation. In other words, their gospel is this. Christ came, no, more precisely, Jesus came. The man Jesus came in order to make it possible for you to be saved by opening the door of salvation. You, however, as I used with the example this morning with you as high schoolers, you, however, must climb the stairs to get to the great door where you see glory beyond. Christ just opened for it. Now, you keep the law every day. You do your ceremonial washings. You follow all of those Old Testament dietary requirements. You climb the stairs daily, and eventually you will get through the open door that Christ has made. Paul says, that is a false gospel. That is a false Jesus. That is false salvation. And he is concerned about those he loves there in the church of Corinth who are being deceived by that gospel. And he has no sympathy for those who are teaching that gospel. Later on, in the church of the New Testament, the same false gospel is going to emerge, but it's going to have another title. There it's going to become known as Gnosticism. There, once again, the man Jesus opens the door. But once again, we must climb the steps. How? Through mystical experiences. And unless I have a mystical experience of some sort, unless I have some sort of way in which God communicates directly to me and speaks directly to me, I cannot be assured of my salvation. That Gnostic belief is going to emerge as the false teaching that the Apostle John is going to have to deal with in his letters. It is no different, my friends, than the false teaching that arrives out of Rome today. That was the example we used with, with our high schoolers. In Rome's view, Christ but opens the door as the possibility of salvation. You, on a daily basis, must do your good works. You must go to your mass. You must go to your confessional. You must pay your indulgences. You must pay money to the church. You must do all those things in order to climb that great tower and then hopefully someday to make it into glory. Except nobody ever makes it there in this life. We always end up half short. So, you know, somebody else has got to cough up the rest of the money. Somebody else has to pay the fine. Somebody else has to pay to get you the rest of the way. It's Rome's heresy. It's the Gnostic heresy. It is the Judaizers' heresy that it must be Christ plus something you do. Something else needs to be added to Christ. And Paul says that is a false gospel. 
And although Paul is not dealing with it here, we must also add that there is a teaching rampant that adds to it this. It is Christ minus. It is the teaching of all the fullness of salvation. It's found in Christ. Yes, but you never get it fully here. It is a teaching of salvation minus hope. It is a salvation minus joy. It is a salvation minus peace. It is a salvation minus assurance. Mark, what was the last number? 653? I think that's what it was. 623. Turn to that a minute. Turn to that. Do you know there are brothers and sisters, quote unquote, in the Reformed faith who cannot, who will not sing this hymn? They can't. Because they never get past their sin. Those of you who were in Costa Rica, that was the discussion during Sunday school. That was the argument that was going on that we witnessed last Sunday morning in Sunday school. Can I ever have peace with God? There is now therefore no condemnation in Jesus Christ. Paul goes on in that passage to talk about the fact that we have peace with God. And the argument became, no, I can never truly have that peace. Because my sin is so great. Dying with Jesus by death reckoned mind. Living with Jesus a new life divine. Looking till Jesus, till glory does shine. Moment by moment, O Lord, I am thine. That is a statement of conviction. There are those who, who know all the right terms. They can define justification, sanctification. stuck in sin. They don't ever think they can get beyond that. That is a false gospel. God's Word tells us that the truth and reality that we have in Christ is not just for then. It is for now is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now, that's the living reality of the gospel. And oh, the joy, the peace, the assurance, the hope that that gives to you and I as a believer in Jesus Christ. That we, that we, through Christ, can say, it is well with my soul. In the world, all goes on in this passage to reflect for us on the fact that Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. It is Satan who took on the appearance of a serpent. It is Satan 
sometimes comes to us clothed in what appears to be righteousness, what appears to be a goodness, what appears to be perhaps a false piety. Oh, you see, Pastor, I'm, I, I wouldn't dare think about myself as being free. Oh, no, I'm, I'm still in bondage to my sin. Well, what did Christ do on the cross then? What good was it to die on that bloody cross if He didn't set you free from something? Oh, Pastor, I, I just find it so difficult to accept the fact that, that I don't have to add anything. Don't, don't I have to do something to, to add to my salvation? No. No. Jesus paid it all. Paid it all. Satan loves to disguise himself as that which appears to be pious, that which appears to be humble, that which would appear perhaps even from, from a logical point of view to make sense. And he wants us to use our reason rather than to understand grace is not reasonable. For if it were reasonable, it would not be grace. These are not things, my friends, that we reason out, that we come to some logical conclusion about. But we look to the truth of God's Word. We hear God speak. And even though it doesn't match our human minds, we accept it as truth because God has spoken that truth. And so Paul comes to us with a warning. The warning of, be careful of the wiles of Satan. Be careful of those agents of Satan who put on pretended righteousness. With all of their do-goodisms. With all of their war. With all of their mystical experiences. With all of their false piety. Says, be careful. Distinguish between the truth of the pure gospel of Christ and that which is false. That, my friends, is not really hard to do because God's given it to us in black and white so that we may discern, that we may distinguish true gospel of Christ, a gospel of grace, a gospel of joy, a gospel in which Christ has fully paid for all our sin. God's people say, Father, thank you for your word, for its reminder tonight that Father, we are called to be those of open heart. We are called to be those of great compassion. We are called to be those of great love. But love, Father, does not mean we're doormats. Love also means that there are times when we have to rise up in righteous indignation, even as Paul did here. And when the gospel of Christ, when the people of God 
are being are being cunningly manipulatively being led astray to another Jesus to another spirit to another gospel Father we must see the truth of Christ the truth of salvation Jesus wasn't just a man he was indeed your son and it's because of his divinity and because of his humanity that our sin has been atoned for we do not need to add to it nor should we take away from that glorious gospel but we do as the church need to arise we do need to fight we do need to clothe ourselves with the spiritual armor in order, Father, that we may, out of love for the church, for the body, for fellow believers, rise up against Satan and his demonic host. Lord, bless us in that effort. Not for our name, but for the glory, for the honor of your Son, in whose name we pray and God's people say, Amen.